Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Okay, you guys, I've given this a lot of thought, and I think that rational security needs a cognitive test. So, Otherwise, how else do we know we're rational? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's really no other way. Um, so we need to pick five words um, that we should put in our test. So like, Tammy, just pick five words. What would your five words be? Uh, Louis, Gumroot, <laughs> <laughs> camera, TV, uh-huh. man. Okay. Susan, what do you, were you at five words? Honestly, I feel like I want to make this joke, but I've gotten to that point in my life where I like, I call my kids like the, the other kid's name, then the dog's name and like forget what I'm doing midway through. So I, I feel like I'm kind of in a glass house here. Like okay. I was impressed five whole words. Like that's, you know, it's not nothing. Ben, do you have an idea for five words that may or may not be easy to remember? Sure. Um, memo, leak, I, <laughs> and A. Those are letters, but not words. Oh, you naughty boy. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the bar, Portland, Pompeo, camera... TV edition. Beautiful. I'm, I'm Shane Harris. If you ask me those five words 20 minutes from now, I will remember them because they are written down in front of me. Sharp <laughs> as a tack. <laughs> you will prick your finger on me. I'm so sharp. You know, real lawyers, Shane, take mm. notes. <laughs> I need a real lawyer. Where's my Roy Cohn? It's amazing. You've just shown that you are one. Apparently. I'm a real lawyer, finally. <laughs> After years <laughs> of hosting this podcast, I'm a real lawyer. That's great. Um, I am here in the Remote Jungle studio with my good friends, Susan Hennessy, Ben Wittes, and Tamara Kaufman-Wittes. Hi, guys. Hi. It Boo. is a lo- Boo. Oh, my goodness. It is a lovely day in late July. It's not as hot this week. I'm very pleased for that. It's a little cooler in my uh, in my remote jungle studio. I hope you guys are feeling good. My remote jungle studio is sweltering, but oh I'm also in like a regular room. Mm. And so if my sound quality is as good as it was previously, it means that for the past four months, <laughs> I've been like hunched on the ground of a closet <laughs> with like blankets over me doing this podcast in the most absurd way for no reason. Wow. Picture well. it didn't happen. <laughs> I did. I tweeted pictures of my of my remote jungle studio. The well, nation is grateful for your sacrifice. We are. Yeah, you no. sound good. You sound good. Uh, on the podcast this week, Attorney General Bill Barr testifies before Congress about a lot. State and federal officials negotiate how to remove federal forces from Portland amid continuing protests. And Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, you remember him, faces his own day on the Hill after a blistering report 
on State Department dysfunction. Uh, let us start with the, I feel like this is fair to say, the much anticipated slash much delayed testimony of Bill Barr uh, before the House Judiciary Committee this week. I'll just give you a flavor of it if you missed it from our coverage from the Post. Democrats clashed with Attorney General Barr on Tuesday at a congressional hearing marked by angry recriminations over racial justice protests in Portland and around the country as the nation's top law enforcement officials said additional agents were needed to subdue aggressive, violent crowds. Uh, this hearing started out acrimonious, liberal lawmakers accusing the AG of politicizing the Justice Department uh, through those deployment of federal agents to U.S. cities, uh, as well as grilling him on his involvement in high profile prosecutions of people connected to the president and his posture in the upcoming presidential election, which we will get to, I'm sure. Uh, ben, I want to start with you on this. I was struck that in Barr's opening remarks, he said that partisan politics and political rhetoric had no place at the Justice Department. And then he immediately criticized, in his words, the bogus Russiagate scandal, and then insisted that he had made decisions free from political influence. Uh, which we've talked a lot about before on the podcast. So rate for us Barr's performance in this hearing, which, and disagree with me if you want on this, struck me as indeed a largely political one. However, he might want to argue the opposite. Oh, I think that's right. So I, I want to rate on two separate scales. One is Barr's performance in his own mind, and the other is Barr's performance to anybody who is not a fervent believer in what he has done and represents, because I think they're very different. So first, I was really struck in that hearing by how uncynical Barr was. He seemed to genuinely believe everything he's saying. I don't think it's an act. I think he's a he's a true believer, which is to say, at least with respect to some of the things that he's saying, I think he's delusional. He really seemed very earnest about that he was depoliticizing things. And as you say, the next lines out of his mouth would be these highly political statements, including uh, about how the last administration had behaved very politically with respect to the Russia investigation and other things and how there was a two-tiered system of justice in the last administration. Uh, but he really actually seemed to believe it all. I was talking to Matt Miller on, on the In Lieu of Fun show last night about this, and we kind of both agreed that like he has drunk his own Kool-Aid and he really seems to I believe he walked out of that hearing feeling like he had answered every question effectively and that he had stood up for a political justice uh, against the ravages of the crazy left. That said, I think anybody watching it from, uh, from a perspective other than the kind of marinating in the Fox News stew perspective I think would have a very different impression of it. And Bill Barr is very smart. He's he's extremely articulate. You know, he presents his arguments well. And yet what he's trying to defend is indefensible. And it's indefensible from the point of view, whether he's talking about 
you know, clearing away large numbers of peaceful protesters because there have been uh, a certain number of violent incidents in Washington about whether, you know, in his characterizations of certain things that have gone on in Portland and in his characterizations of, you know, his own conduct with respect to the Russia investigation, with respect to the Roger Stone and, and, and Michael Flynn prosecutions. And I, I think he probably did himself no favors uh, and did Trump no favors in uh, the political battle that we are all having over this. But I think he probably has no idea of that because I, I think in his mind, he, he walked in and honestly and earnestly answered all the questions and was uh, defended a clearly defensible set of positions. Yeah, so I'm going to be less generous to Bill Barr than Ben was in sort of describing this. Well, I'll be even less generous than that. Um, right? So Ben's sort of describing this true believer who believes um, everything he's doing is above board. I I think it's I think he is a true believer, but he I, I don't actually believe that he doesn't recognize exactly what he's doing um, and how pernicious it is. I think that Bill Barr has convinced himself that Democrats and the radical left have broken all the rules, have politicized the Department of Justice, have done all of these terrible things, and turnabout is fair play, and the ends absolutely justify the means. And he, no matter what he's doing, even if he plainly recognizes because any person with just basic logic and common sense could recognize that he is doing exactly what he criticizes others of doing. Um, I think he justifies that to himself as being basically justified and and allowed and and allowable and for the good of the country and the good of the Department of Justice. Um, And so I I think it's a true believer of that type. You know, that said, I I don't think he's a good faith actor and I'd make a little bit of a distinction. Um, you know, look, a, uh, the House took House Democrats took a lot of criticism for being sort of scattered and talking over Bill Barr. Um, anyone who routinely watches House hearings shouldn't be especially surprised, although um, I acknowledge that was frustrating, um, right, that they really were not able to get answers out of him in part because there were so many different questions, uh, so many sort of different thematic abuses to attempt to uh, to sort of, you know, get to some ground truth on. And so nothing was really uh, developed. Um, There was one thing that I think was really, really, really disturbing and hasn't gotten enough attention. And that's his quite intentional decision to cast doubts about the security and integrity of voting by mail. Um, So he said multiple times in his testimony that he's very concerned about foreign actors manipulating sort of voting by mail in November at this very large scale. There is no evidence to support that claim. Individuals in the United States government who are actually tasked with election security are saying precisely the opposite. Um, And this is the kind of very, very troubling foreshadowing about what role Bill Barr might play in the immediate lead up to the election and what role he might play in the days and weeks after the election to the extent that Donald Trump tries to in some way 
contest or uh, undermine the legitimacy of an outcome if he does not, uh, if he's not in fact reelected. Um, and so that's something that I think people uh, should be far more focused on because that's not just Bill Barr uh, affirming his prior abuses and that he's perfectly proud of them and makes no apologies. Um, it's also Bill Barr showing his hand about where he plans to go from here. Um, and that is something we should be really, really, really alarmed and concerned about. And I thought it was troubling to not see more pushback, more follow-up, and more coverage of how fundamentally unacceptable it was and damaging to this country in the long term it is for the attorney general to be amplifying and repeating the president's absolutely false and unfounded statements um, that voting by mail is somehow illegitimate. And so, you know, that's just one area that um, I think is real cause for concern. So I am sort of torn in thinking about this hearing because at the one level, I agree with Susan that what we really need to focus on is what the attorney general's intentions are and how he thinks about the role he intends to play between now and, you know, whenever he leaves office. And in that regard, I would say disturbing yesterday was not only the crazy stuff about voter fraud, but also the degree to which he was completely unrepentant about Lafayette Square, um, about what happened in Washington in the beginning of June. And, you know, we are still dealing with the prospect of Uh, deputized federal law enforcement of various types showing up in various American cities, something that we're going to talk more about in the Portland context in a minute. So, you know, on the one hand, yes, we need to understand what this guy's worldview is and what it is he intends to push. And as far as I could tell yesterday, he's pushing whatever, like whatever is on the agenda that comes from the White House or Fox News. Um, there didn't seem to be a sort of coherent theory of the law behind any of it. It's just a bunch of agenda items pushed by the president and his allies, and he seems intent on facilitating those. But the other part of me, you know, recognizes that a hearing like this, its main function, Americans aren't watching the whole thing. They're going to see tiny little clips of it on the news or in political advertising. And so all of the talking over each other and kind of shouting at each other, um, which is so frustrating to listen to from inside the Beltway, is really sort of the whole point of the thing from outside the Beltway. So my question to to Susan and Ben and Shane is, how do you think the American public looks at Bill Barr after this hearing? Well, let me try and answer that by also posing a question that relates to it, too, which is, I agree with Tammy that I don't know that I don't think the public tunes into this. And for most people, Bill Barr is probably a presence and a face they've seen and they're not really following, you know, his statements and policies that closely. But I do think that insofar as he's the attorney general and oversees various investigations that are going on right now, including the one from John Durham, the assistant U.S. attorney who's looking into the origins of the Russia probe, you know, he can kind of load the political cannons and fire them at will. Uh, And that is something that will get the American public's attention. I mean, he was asked whether he would hold off on releasing any findings from the Durham investigation as we get close to the election, since it will presumably be a very politically charged document. And he wouldn't agree to that. And, you know, there have been 
rumors flying for months and maybe even longer that Durham is, you know, going to find some kind of October surprise that's going to, you know, reveal that the entire Russia investigation was corrupt. I think most people find that pretty absurd. But Bill Barr is kind of his one with the finger on the trigger, it seems to me, with respect to that. Um, Ben, what do you think? Well, so Barr acknowledged that Durham had gotten slowed down because of coronavirus. And, you know, he also clearly had high hopes for this investigation at some point and maybe still does. I remain something of a Durham investigation skeptic in the sense that I I don't really understand what he could find that would be terribly devastating. I I could imagine things that he could find relative to individuals that would be damaging to them or things that he could insinuate. But the the activity that constituted the Mueller investigation happened actually. You know, the the IRA case states a bunch of facts. None of those facts are meaningfully in dispute based on anything Durham found. The the Russia uh, hacking indictment states a bunch of facts. Those aren't meaningfully in dispute. The Roger Stone case was proven beyond a reasonable doubt in a court. The other cases involved pleas. So you can kind of chip at the edge of this and, you know, spin out conspiracy theories in which you know, Jim Comey was feeding dog treats to Pete Strzok under a table and they hatched out uh, up the, you know, uh, and John Brennan called and they all sort of somehow got Alexander Downer to meet with George Papadopoulos. But like, is anybody going to really care, given that the fundamental findings of the Mueller investigation are just true, right? And You know, the Mueller investigation itself generated less attention and focus. The story that he told generated less investigation and focus than it should have and probably warranted. Does anybody really think that the sort of faux undermining of that through some other reinvestigation of a reinvestigation is going to make a big splash in the face of a pandemic? and an economic collapse. So I I remain of the view that, you know, conservatives are, or Trump supporters are too hopeful about John Durham, including, by the way, Bill Barr, and that a lot of people who are afraid of the October surprise, whatever effective October surprise is going to happen, don't think is going to come from John Durham. And, you know, for all the people who keep tweeting at me that, you know, when Durham's done, I'm going to get arrested and sent to Gitmo. You know, I'm waiting. Cuba's lovely. Yeah, I mean, look, there there is clearly uh, right now sort of a coordinated and ongoing effort to try and undermine the Russia investigation sort of writ large. And I think what we're seeing is um, a plan that was uh, sort of put into motion before the pandemic and was really a plan that maybe was about um, sort of those marginal Fox News watchers that um, obviously are consuming right-wing media, which is the only place any of this stuff is really coming up, um, are uncomfortable 
with Trump and sort of on the bubble about whether or not they really would turn out to vote for him again, sort of trying to rehabilitate this or give a narrative of this victimized president and the radical out of control left. Um, I just think that's a strategy that is fundamentally pointless in the face of a pandemic and, and an economic collapse that Ben is uh, as Ben is referring to. Um, the one place that I could see this suddenly becoming very significant is if, for example, Joe Biden selected Susan Rice as his vice presidential candidate. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Somebody, you know, right, who's who's on the ticket and allows them to sort of rehash conspiracy theories uh, that I could see sort of giving it another sort of charge. Um, but other than that, I think this is just a sort of a, a foolish endeavor designed to, to preach to an ex- sort of a, a small choir of uh, of Trump devotees. And um, the right answer for the rest of us is probably just to roll our eyes and ignore it. Yeah, I'm with Susan, by the way, on the Susan Rice pick. I, for the life of me, don't know what that, what exactly that gets them. And it seems other than a lot of headaches, but we shall see. Um, let's talk about let's talk about my hometown, Portland. I talked to my mom the other day, by the way, about how things were going in Portland. She hasn't left the house, but that's not because of protests. That's because of coronavirus. But Susan, why don't you start us off with the latest news that we're just hearing about now, which is that federal tactical teams are going to be leaving this city, according to the governor, under an agreement with in which Oregon State Police will protect the exterior of the city's federal courthouse, which I think has been a scene of a lot of the protest and uh, and purportedly, anyway, a lot of the concern in the White House. Uh, and then federal officers who normally do security at that building will protect the interior. So is this effectively a kind of a truce between the state of Oregon and the Trump administration? Yeah, I think it's a way to attempt to let the Trump administration back down without appearing as though they're giving up entirely. Um, it's a little bit hard to reconcile um, the Oregon governor's statement um, with the interview that acting DHS Secretary Chad Wolf gave uh, afterwards, in which she said that they had reached an agreement that DHS, um, ICE, and CBP agents would actually were, were planning to leave in one week. Chad Wolf kept saying again and again that they will stay until they are confident that the federal property uh, is in fact secured. And so there's some daylight between there that it's not entirely clear what's going on. Um, And yes, the agreement appears to be this compromise by which the Federal Protective Service and the Marshal Service are going to protect inside the courthouse and fence, sort of the fence around it. And then the Oregon State Police will, uh, will assist them and then CBP and other federal officers are kind of going to be on standby in case things get out of control, but like will not actually be deployed. Um, that like that appears to be the way things are breaking down. You know, we'll see how this actually plays out in practice. Um, I do think it's significant that we um, this would resolve the issue of sort of the federal government being deployed over the objections of the state and state officials in a, in a context in which the pretext was really really unclear. I I also think it uh, certainly lends credence to the narrative that this was never about real concern for federal property. This was about, uh, you know, Stephen Miller and others seeking to get images and and particular sort of viral content that shows these violent clashes or can be presented as showing violent clashes. And so I I think we can uh, can say that this is a truce for now in Portland. Um, The big question, though, for me is, is the intention to then 
replay this sort of in a rinse and repeat way in lots of other American cities, right? Because we have Trump making these comments about deploying federal forces sort of all over the place. So, you know, it does, it is a truce in the sense of it's an actual agreement that both sides appear to um, to be buying into. Um, we'll see if it actually resolves tensions in Portland in the long term, you know, but, but I don't know that this story of uh, the sort of militarized DHS being deployed in cities that the president of the United States happens not to like. Um, I don't know that that story is over yet. Ben, talk to us a bit about what you've been learning. Uh, you've been doing some some journalism of your own in terms of what DHS is doing on the ground, expanding definitions that it applies to protesters, as well as some of the intelligence that they appear to be collecting. We've talked, I think, last week or the week before on the podcast about these new this new guidance that lets DHS Intelligence and Analysis, or INA, to call back to your cognitive test, collect information about threats to monuments, statues, and memorials, which seem to be a way to kind of broaden the lens, uh, if you will, to to get more information collected on protesters. So what are you finding? Memo, leak, I, and A. And, you know, they ask it to you later. And if you get it in order, you get extra points. <laughs> well, then you get extra points, my friend. I do. I got it in order and I remembered it for, you know, 20 minutes or however long we've been going. Um, look, I, uh, People uh, have been giving me uh, a variety of different documents, which I have been tweeting as soon as I, A, verify that they are authentic and, B, that they are not classified. And I think one of them in particular, one of them is a document complaining about previous uh, disclosures to me and actually to you. Uh, the other one, which I think is more significant, frankly, is a document that seems to reclassify or to uh, suggest that Antifa should be reclassified as a kind of violent uh, threat actor, a sort of repeat player threat actor, which I think come really comes from the president's uh, public suggestion in a tweet sometime back that he was going to designate Antifa as a terrorist organization. This can't be done uh, under the law, but I think what INA did or proposed is changing the nomenclature of it to be much more terrorist-like. And I think a lot of people found that offensive, both inside the government and outside of it. And, you know, I, I think it reflects a sort of aggressiveness of language that, you know, coincides with an aggressiveness of collection and of, you know, philosophy in terms of what is collectible and what is not. The memo uses language like baseball cards to refer to the information dossiers that they have on people. Baseball cards is a term from imported from the Iraq operations where we were kind of going after individuals, many of whom we were killing, by the way. And the baseball cards were the kind of dossiers on them. And so there's sort of an increasing use of kind of 
counterterrorism-inspired language and counterterrorism-inspired uh, energy associated with, you know, uh, what are in some cases genuinely uh, violent individuals, but people who are basically uh, engaged in vandalism and sort of defacing buildings rather than what we would think of as terrorism. Tammy. So I feel like, yeah, I feel like we really need to revisit what the federal response to events in Portland means. Because I feel like we can look at this stand down by CPB, and it is, let's not make any bones about it. This is them backing down, backing down in the face of pressure from within their own party as well as, you know, the outcry from civil society and from Democrats and and the oversight attempts and things like that, they overreached and they sparked fears which exist throughout the conservative half of America about abuses of power by the federal government and overriding the autonomy of states in a federal system. And, you know, so they're backing down in Portland and they were making the problem worse very demonstrably. So we should understand this as backing down. But backing down from what? One of the things that really troubled me about a lot of the media coverage of what CPB was doing on the ground and what federal agents were doing on the ground in Portland is that it was discussed constantly in the context of creating a narrative for the president's reelection campaign in the context of domestic politics. Oh, he wants to get video images on behalf of his law and order campaign. Never mind that what they were actually doing was the very opposite of regular law and order. Snatching people off the streets in unmarked vans is not law and order, and no American is going to see it that way. But the bigger problem is that the authorities that were given and what Ben just described about the intelligence operations underway, plus Trump's promise to do this elsewhere, these things add up to something far more than an attempt to create a campaign narrative. This is the big, and I know I'm going to sound paranoid, but I don't think I'm being paranoid. This is an authoritarian attempt. It's an attempt to use federal power to suppress free speech and civil rights. It's an attempt to use federal power to intimidate and to exclude from legitimate politics a whole chunk of the public. That's what was going on in the streets in Portland. And that's why I'm so relieved that CPB was forced to back down from this overreach. But I worry that everything else that's going on, the intelligence collection by DHS, the baseball cards, which, I, you know, as a Middle East expert, I do find that a really chilling linguistic adaptation. And the the uh, agreement to send ATF and FBI into Chicago and Detroit and these other places, I worry that this stuff is now not going to be taken seriously because they back down in Portland. And I think we do need to keep really close eyes on this. I think we do need to take seriously the politicization of the largest law enforcement agency in the federal government. Well, Chad Wolf and Bill Barr are having a bad week. Mike Pompeo might be having a bad week. Next week, 
when he goes up to the hill. It is next week, right? That's when he's, or is it later this I week? It's tomorrow. It's Which tomorrow. Thursday? Oh, he's going to have, well, he may have a bad week after all. Um, uh, we have seen a report that's come out from, uh, from congressional Democrats, to be clear, uh, the key findings of which underscore that career officials from 2016 to 2019, uh, quoting here, reported steep increases in fear of reprisal for reporting suspected violations of law and declining confidence in senior State Department leadership. Uh, They talked about 11 assistant secretary or undersecretary posts being vacant or led by acting officials. We've seen similar trends elsewhere, including at DHS. And diplomats reporting, quote, a sense of disrespect and disdain for their work, prompting many to leave and contributing to a loss of expertise at the department. Tammy, we've talked a lot about dysfunction at the State Department, about mismanagement, about low morale in the career ranks, in the Foreign Service. And we'll talk maybe a bit more about the findings of the report. But I want to start by asking you a hypothetical, which is that if Joe Biden is elected president, what does the to-do list look like for the next Secretary of State as he or she sets out to, presumably as they would, uh, try to rebuild and repair from the Trump era? Yeah, I think the next Secretary of State is going to have a huge um, institution repair and building challenge. And it's interesting because usually this is such a plum cabinet post because, you know, you get to do high politics and fly around the world and glad hand. And I'm not sure it's going to be as attractive a post um, coming after a Trump administration because the flying around the world is going to be cleaning up messes, apologizing, and rebuilding relationships that the Trump administration blew up. And there's a huge agenda at home, which involves, you know, taking over a decimated, traumatized workforce and trying to rebuild its capacity to carry out really essential functions. And I have to say, it's decimated and traumatized not only by the Trump administration's treatment of it under both Tillerson and Pompeo, but also by the crises it has gone through. You know, the coronavirus crisis has had massive impacts on the whole country. It's it's had massive impacts on the world. And one of the stories that we may have forgotten about because it was, you know, oh, three or four months ago was all the hundreds of thousands of stranded Americans trying to get home. So our already short-staffed diplomats already feeling like their bosses don't support them and only see them as part of a deep state conspiracy were working 24-7 for months getting Americans home from places all over the world as airports and airlines were shutting down. So I I think, you know, what's the first task? Well, the first task is like everything. I think that's part of the problem. But it starts with a statement of leadership, a statement of principles that a new secretary speaks to the workforce and says, I understand how hard it's been. I believe in you. I support you and I'm going to work to make this place better for all of you and for everybody else that we need to bring in to do this work. And I think, you know, that should be a doable message. You know, if it's a Joe Biden win, then you have this progressive movement that already wants to move resources from the Pentagon to the State Department and already has sort of adopted 
people like, you know, retired ambassador Marie Ivanovich as heroes and heroines. So hopefully there will be public support for the legislative changes and the budgetary support that the State Department is going to need to rebuild. But boy, that that Secretary of State is going to have a tough, tough job. Ben. I just want to say I would love to have that tough job. I'm not proposing myself as Secretary of State, but you walk into a building where you will be greeted like the Lord and Savior himself. You go to a foreign meeting, all that jetting around the world to apologize. You walk in and allies will fall at your feet and say, oh, thank God you're here. You have no idea what we've been through. Uh, You know, this would be such a freaking ego boost. And I am... I agree it's a hard job, but it's a hard job that would uh, be really satisfying. Wow, I so disagree with that. I don't think that's going to be the reaction at all. I think that a new secretary is going to walk in and get a lot of stony faces and say, you know, really, what can you do to demonstrate that we can believe whatever is about to come out of your mouth? Because your country is so screwed up. I would just uh, draw everybody's attention to this amazing final paragraph of the Washington Post story about this report by John Hudson, which reads in full, the State Department representative said that the department's, quote, swagger is fully back, end quote, using a catchphrase Pompeo repeatedly invoked at the outset of his tenure. The department declined to offer the name of a specific person willing to defend Pompeo's leadership. End of story. Yes, you know, you're, you're right, Susan. That was um, very, very telling. And it was also telling that when the Democrats released this report yesterday, uh, one of the star speakers at their briefing was Pompeo's own former undersecretary for political affairs, mm-hmm. distinguished and beloved career foreign service officer Tom Shannon. And, you know, it raises a very, this is much more of a political question for Mike Pompeo, but it's one that I, I find fascinating. And I agree with everything Tammy said about the, the uphill climb that the next secretary faces. But if Joe Biden wins, I mean, is that just curtains for Mike Pompeo? I mean, look, I know he might try to run again, you know, in four years, but he has hitched himself to President Trump more than probably any cabinet secretary. He's the longest lasting one. You know, the decimation, I think it's fair to say, of the leadership ranks of the State Department. I'm not sure that he's going to really use that much to run on. And, you know, and before Mike Pompeo became CIA director and secretary of state, I mean, he was a junior congressman from the far wings of the Tea Party. Uh, it just, it, I just, it's, it, it's such a fascinating rise and potentially, if not fall, maybe just fade away from Mike Pompeo. I think that's right. So I think Pompeo's had two possible plays. One, which I think he really wanted to do, was to run for Senate in Kansas, and that would have given him a perch for the four years that if Joe Biden won until he could kind of figure out uh, whether he was going to run for president himself. Uh, for a variety of reasons, that did not work out for him. And so you end up with a bit of a lion in winter situation. Uh, One possible solution to that is to spend a lot of time in Iowa and New Hampshire starting early, 
Uh, a second possible way to do it is to kind of camp out at an institution of one sort or another, maybe associate with a law firm and do a kind of lot of grouchy public speaking about the Biden administration and kind of emerge as a, you know, like a, this is basically a John Bolton-like strategy, right? But situate yourself somewhere where you can be the bomb-throwing opposition and then parlay that into a presidential run. The problem with Pompeo, you know, is that he's, with the exception of this one congressional district, he's never shown that he has any electoral appeal to anybody. And, you know, he is a genuinely unpleasant person. And, you know, politicians do at some level have to be at least a little bit likable or charismatic. And he just, you know, he's just not. And I think, you know, in a way that that Bill Barr uh, actually, you know, has some public appeal in that he's, you know, highly articulate. That is not Mike Pompeo. And Mike Pompeo, I think we will, we're likely to see that in tomorrow's hearing that he's, you know, he's just a growly kind of guy. And it's very hard for me to imagine him having an appealing presidential run. It's not growly. He's whiny. Right. And look, it's also clear that um, one of the reasons he did not pursue a Kansas Senate run is because there are serious concerns about his ethical conduct in office, serious concerns about his wife's role at CIA and at the State Department, serious concerns about his involvement in firing the inspector general of the State Department, serious concerns about the underlying conduct said inspector general was investigating while at the State Department. And so, you know, there was a reason Mike Pompeo didn't think he could run for, for, uh, for Senate. And that reason is going to follow him. And so I, I, to Shane's original question, I, I think Mike Pompeo has gone 100% in on Donald Trump. Um, and that if Donald Trump does not win re-election, I, I do think it's curtains for him and any political aspirations he might have in the future. Yeah, and I think that he and <clears throat> perhaps his family wouldn't mind so much if they went back to Kansas or somewhere else. And uh, and he made a lot of money in the private sector. That's something that, uh, you know, is often attractive to to people who have been in his high positions. Um, Wasn't he a failed businessman in an oil company before he got elected to Congress? Uh, it was an aerospace <laughs> firm, I think. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but bygones. Let's go on to object lessons. Um, uh, Tammy, why don't you start us off? Okay. So my object lesson is a great uh, initiative that was launched today by a great organization called Out in National Security. They, uh, working with the Diversity in National Security Network and New America, have been putting together, they did one last year, and this is their second year, a list of rising leaders in national security and foreign policy who are LGBTQI or A or plus. <laughs> um, and so today their list came out. It is a fantastic group of people. I know several of them, they're working in government, they're working in the private sector, they're in the military, um, they're on the Hill. And these are folks who are inspiring, smart, 
impactful and are bringing their whole selves to work every day to inspire other folks in the LGBT community. So I I love out in national security. I love the positivity of what they do. And today is just a great example. Um, so I'm going to post this on the show page and I encourage everybody to watch these folks. Uh, I will go next with mine. Uh, I have a little, well, it's not, it's not a book recommendation per se, because the book is not out yet, but a little uh, story that I wrote today in the post flagging that John Brennan, the former CIA director, does have a new book coming out, which is going to be on sale October 6th. It's his you know, memoir of his time in the CIA. Most CIA directors do these kinds of books. Uh, to wit, the interesting point uh, in the chapter or two that I was able to get a look at that I wrote about in the paper <clears throat> was that when Brennan went to go to the agency to say, I'd like to see my official records to include, you know, files, notes that he'd written, uh, you know, uh, things that he had signed, et cetera, which are, of course, classified, the agency told him no, which was a break with basically standard practice uh, for every other director. Uh, and some of these rules are actually apparently spelled out in executive order. Uh, and what he found was, was that President Trump, as he puts it, purportedly issued a directive uh, that no one in the intelligence community could share classified information with Brennan. Uh, so this was a very interesting sort of uh, moment, uh, I think, for him, but also helps explain the mystery of whether or not John Brennan's security clearances were ever actually revoked. He says they were not. So check it out. The book goes on sale uh, next month. Uh, so speaking of intelligence uh, officials who have books uh, on the way out, uh, we should also mention Pete Strzok's book, Compromised, which was announced this week and will be on sale September 8th. I'm sure I will use it as my object lesson later once I have actually read it, but I have not yet. My object lesson today uh, is a different book uh, by a fellow named Michelle Paradis. Michelle is a lawyer for the Office of Military Commission's Defense. Uh, he represents some pretty nasty people at Guantanamo, and he is a super sharp and really fine lawyer. And his work on these military commissions led him to this astonishing story of two military commissions in Japan uh, after one during the war and one after World War II uh, that both involved uh, the Doolittle Raiders, who were, for those of you who are not World War II buffs, the Doolittle Raids were the first U.S. bombing runs on Japan and they were essentially a suicide mission by uh, a group of bombers who took off from an aircraft carrier, flew over Japan, dropped bombs, and then kept going and tried to land in China. And some of these people, the vast majority of them actually managed to get away and make it back to forces. But eight of them were captured by the Japanese, eight out of 80. And of those eight, they were put on trial in the military, in a military commission, Japanese military commission, sentenced to death. Three of them were executed and five of them were finally rescued at the end of the war, at which point the U.S. military put on trial the people who had put them on trial. And this is the story of the two trials 
the trial of the Doolittle Raiders and the trial of the triers of the Doolittle Raiders, written by a guy who is now representing defendants in U.S. military commissions at Guantanamo. Uh, And so I have not yet read this book, um, but I did have a long conversation about it on the Lawfare podcast with Michelle, who uh, it has not, uh, the podcast has not yet run, but it will in the coming few days. And I was just, I found the story completely gripping. And uh, I know Michelle's writing from his legal briefs is wonderful. And so I, without yet having read the book, recommend it uh, highly. And I am very much looking forward to reading it myself. The book is called Last Mission to Tokyo, the extraordinary story of the Doolittle Raiders and their final fight for justice. Well, this is our final fight because that's the end of the podcast, you guys. Oh. Leak. Memo. (laughs) (laughs) Ben, you did very nicely pass that cognitive test. I think you get extra points. Sorry, what day is it? (laughs) Can he identify a picture of an elephant? That's the real test. It's Wednesday, which is when we always record Rational Security, which of course is a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com where you can buy your own Lawfare slash Rational Security slash in lieu of fun cognitive test. Can you remember all those show names? If I ask you then in five minutes, will you still remember them? Rational Security Lawfare Funfair in lieu of (laughs) Fun. <laughs> Excellent. Camera TV. You can find us on Twitter at RATL Security. You can find us as well on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please remember to leave a rating and a five star review. That's five stars, just like five words in our cognitive test. It will help other people find the show. And we really appreciate it. Our audio engineer this week was Zachary Frank from Goat Rodeo. The show was produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Bill Barr. And as Ben said, he is very, very confident uh, in many things. So confident that he was spotted on top of the Justice Department building in Washington singing, I believe I can fly. (laughs) Good. It's a little dark. (laughs) Sophia Yam was backing him up saying, I'm sure, I'm sure you can. Go for it. Do it. <laughs> On behalf of my good friends Ben Wittes, Tomorrow Coffin Wittes, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Keep on believing. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.